You know, we all love to be included, right? We don't like to be on the outside to be, uh, to be missed. We don't, uh, if there's an invitation to a party, we want to be on the guest list. We don't want to be the ones who were overlooked or who missed out. Uh, this is true for people of all ages, from our children that uh, want to be included in the birthday party invite, all the way up to us who are uh, more dignified folks, but still want to be on that guest list. Today, we are looking in Luke 14 as Jesus describes a banquet, a banquet to which all are invited. But the question is, what will people do with that invitation? And so I invite you to turn there in your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, we invite you to uh, take one that's in the pew rack directly in front of you, and you'll find our passage this morning on page 1038. Page 1038. Last week, as we we're studying this chapter, we saw how Jesus began a, an encounter with the Pharisees around a midday meal. It's chapter 14, verse 1, says that he's dining at the house of a Pharisee, and as he comes into what is typically hostile territory for him, that him and the Pharisees did not get along very well, uh, he took the opportunity to go on the offensive, and he begins to attack and criticize the way that the Pharisees chose to live. He addressed problems and shortcomings that he saw in their lives and in their ministries. And in our passage this morning, he's going to continue that critique of the Pharisees, of these proud men who believed that they were the spiritual elite of the nation and yet who missed the very basic realities of what it means to follow God. And he's going to continue this critique based upon a comment that is made by one of the attendees. So let's see this as we read our passage this morning, picking up in verse 15 and going through verse 24. Luke chapter 14, verse 15. It says, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At that, at, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, 
None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he impress its truths upon our hearts. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. O Father in heaven, we bow humbly before you this morning and ask that you would please speak to us from your word. We thank you that we have your word written down for us and we pray that we would hear it as it is, which is your voice your word to give instruction to us. And Father, may you give us humble hearts that would receive it, that we might live according to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, in this text, uh, this morning, as we look at this parable that Jesus gives of a great banquet, we're gonna see four features of this parable that show us our need to respond to the grace of God offered through Jesus. God is offering his grace to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus makes clear in this parable, we must respond to that grace. We must receive and accept the invitation. So let's begin by looking at the first feature of this parable. And that is number one, the arrogant assumption. The arrogant assumption. And we'll see this in verse 15. If you go back to that verse that we, where we began reading, it says, when one of those who reclined at table with him, that is Jesus, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now you might hear that initially and go, how in the world is that connected to what came before? It seems somewhat of a random interjection that he uh, there's kind of that lull in dinner conversation. Somebody once said that every 11 minutes, statistically, there's an awkward silence in our conversation. And maybe this guy saw this awkward silence, didn't like the awkwardness, and decided to interject some sort of random spiritual comment to get the conversation rolling. But it seems that uh, it seems to be indi or, uh, connected to what Jesus already said. Luke seems to connect this to what Jesus gave just previously because it's one of those who was reclining at table that was at the table there that was prompted to say something. Jesus, if you look up in verse 14, look at the last thing that Jesus has just said. He says, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The resurrection of the just. This resurrection is a reference to the end of the age. The end of this current era of history before the end times, before the end of all things when the righteous would be resurrected to participate in the Messiah's kingdom. And so... Jesus' reference and mention of the resurrection of the just prompted this man to think about the kingdom. And so, at, at one sense though, Jesus has just finished critiquing the, his guests. He's critiqued the Pharisees, critiqued uh, all those who had sat at the table who were guests that day for their proud uh, jockeying for position. They wanted the places of honor and Jesus says, listen, that's not the way we go about it. You need to be seeking to take the humble, the lowly place, not seek to take the high place. 
And then he turns to the host, the one who had called this whole banquet, and he said, listen, you've simply invited your friends. You've invited the very people that can repay you. Instead, you should be looking to invite those who cannot repay you. And instead, look to the end when God will repay you for your generosity. And so this man, maybe sensing a little bit of the tension in the room as Jesus has just stepped on everyone's toes, he's looking to kind of lighten it and change it to a subject that everyone maybe could agree upon. And so he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And for what this man says, in one sense, it's true. That those who do eat bread in the kingdom will be blessed. This man is picking up a theme of the Old Testament. He's not creating something out of thin air. He's picking up an Old Testament expectation that the Jews were looking to their scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, as the revelation of God for what they can expect. And one of the main things that they were taught to expect in the kingdom was a great feast or great banquet. And I want to show you this. And so if you would, turn back with me to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter 25. One of the greatest of old, the Old Testament prophets Isaiah revealed much about what God's plans were for the nation of Israel and for the world and for history. And in Isaiah 25, he gives some indication of what this future idyllic era will look like when the end comes and when God makes everything right. And in Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 9, he says this, On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Some things to note from this passage in Isaiah. Number one, look in verse six. Who is the host? Who's throwing this party? Who's preparing the banquet? It's the Lord of hosts. It is Yahweh himself who is the host. And what is he preparing? He's preparing, it says, a lavish banquet or feast with the best of food. It, the language there of, of food full of marrow, of rich food, of aged wine is trying to say, listen, the best is gonna be prepared. And notice who this feast is for. It says there also, verse six, it's for all peoples. It's not just for Israel. This is for all peoples that the Lord is preparing. Connection with this feast in verse seven and eight, it's talking about death being defeated, death being swallowed up forever. The end of verse eight, it says the reproach of his people, the reproach of Israel will be taken away in that time. And then Verse 9, it's clear 
that this celebration will be a consummation of the final salvation that God brings his people. The people there on that day will sit around this table and will rejoice in the salvation that God has, br has brought. Saying, this is our God, we celebrate him and the salvation that he's brought to us. And so this feast is a culmination of the salvation that he's going to bring his people. And so as we go back to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 14 we see that the Jews who are sitting there on that day around with Jesus at the table knew this Old Testament imagery. They knew that a feast would be, was promised to them and that this would come in the kingdom of the Messiah. It's clear that they interpreted this not as simply spiritual blessings, that somehow rich food and, and well-aged wine was just a, a reference to somehow good spiritual blessings in Christ but that there would be a time in which there would be an actual physical feast that would be prepared. Which is why the man says, blesses everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. Now, indeed, there are rich spiritual blessings in Christ, but we also cannot use those rich spiritual blessings to, to cancel out the blessings, the physical blessings that are referenced in the Old Testament and here in the New Now Jesus affirmed earlier in chapter 13, 29, that there would be people that uh, come to recline at table in the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus affirmed already in the book of Luke that there would be a time in the kingdom in which people will come and eat around a table. And then in chapter 22, as Jesus is celebrating his last supper with his people, with his disciples, the night before his death, he declares there that he will not eat the Passover meal or he will not drink the fruit of the vine again until he eats and drinks of it in the kingdom of God. In other words, he's affirming that there is going to be a feast, but that feast is still in the future. And so with all of this as background, what this man says in verse 15 is true, that blessed are all those who will be invited to the banquet. Blessed are all those who will feast in the kingdom. Of course, this man, along with all the other guests, assumed that they would be invited to that table. This man makes this declaration not out of some sort of spiritual concern like, I don't know if I'm going to be blessed. I don't know if I'm going to actually eat that bread. He states it because, well, I believe he believes he's going to be there. He believes he's already received the invitation. He's already going. And all the others around the table assume the same thing. Indeed, they were the spiritual elite. They were the ones that followed the law to the, to the nth degree. They obeyed everything, and so of course they would be included, they thought. But Jesus had already told the arrogant leadership that the, those who think they're first will actually be last, and they who think they're going to be included will actually find themselves on the outside. They'll be cast into a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth, a reference to the fires of hell. And yet they, they assumed that they would be included. And they assumed that Jesus would too respond and affirm their assumption. They assumed he had the same view that they did. The strict adherence to the law would secure someone's place at the table. If they simply were religious and they simply followed the, the law precisely, they would be included. But Jesus isn't going to go along with this because Jesus, you see, challenges our religious confidence. 
Just like the men around the table that day, we too can believe without foundation that we are okay spiritually. We can mistakenly be confident of our salvation, think that we're going to be included in the righteous and the saved on that final day. And we take confidence in our religious activities. We think, well, I pray so often. Or I attend church regularly. I give to the work of the church. I read my Bible. And we create this list of things that we do that gives us confidence for why we think we might be included among the saved. Friends, there are many folks in this nation that wrongly hold to that assumption. Jesus wants to shake us of unnecessary and unfounded assumptions. And so I ask you this morning, if you believe that you are saved, if you believe that you indeed have Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, I ask you, what is your confidence for saying that? What is it that you lean upon? What is it that you're trusting in when you stand before God on that final day that would enable you to say, yes, I am gonna be saved from the wrath of God? The example of these Pharisees reminds us of the danger of making assumptions about our salvation. Indeed, there is a way to be certain of our salvation and it's by resting in the person and work of Jesus Christ completely and alone. But not like these Pharisees trusting in their own accomplishments, their own good works. So the first feature of this parable that we see is the arrogant assumption but let's turn now to look at the second feature of this parable, and that is the astonishing refusals. The astonishing refusals. And this turns us into Jesus' response to this man in verses 16 through 20. This man declares about eating bread in the kingdom of God, and then look at verse 16. It says, But he, Jesus, said to him, this man, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent out a servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. This man's declaration prompts Jesus to launch into a parable. A parable is a story with a simple message in order to drive home a simple point. And he tells a parable about a great banquet that's held by a man, a wealthy man who's able to invite many people and provide food for them all. When this meal is ready, he then sends out his servant to tell the guests that the food is prepared and the people can come. The setting of this is very quintessentially Middle Eastern. It was common for a wealthy host to send out invitations and seek and ask for RSVPs. They want to know, can you come? I'm holding a banquet. Can you come to this? And they say, yes, I'll be there. He needed to know who could all make it to this banquet because he had to know how much food to prepare. How, which animal would he need to slaughter in order to provide enough meat for the people that would come? I mean, the difference in meat quantities between a chicken, a goat, a sheep, or a calf is quite significant. And so you need to know how much to prepare. And so you'd kind of do this first invitation asking who could make it. But then all the work would happen in preparing the meal. They'd have to slaughter the animal, prepare everything else, get everything set up and ready. And then when they have prepared all the food and it's all ready, they would send out then for the second summons, the second invitation to let them know, come, all is now ready. 
And this is still common in some places of the Middle East today. And guests would be duty-bound to follow up upon their initial commitment. If they RSVP'd, they would, there would be much social expectation and pressure that they would need to follow up on that initial commitment and go to that banquet. Because, indeed, the animal is killed, it's cooked, the food needs to be eaten today. They didn't have this kind of preservation that we have today. And yet, in this story, what's astonishing is that the guests who were originally invited are the ones that refuse this invitation. There are three refusals given. And as we will see, these are not legitimate excuses. These are transparently foolish and absurd on the surface. Anyone in that culture would have understood that. There's something else going on here. They, these people seem to be aligned in seeking to shame the host. You'll notice in verse 18 that it says they all alike began to make excuses. Luke makes it clear uh, in Jesus in telling the story that they were all of the same mind. They were all of one consent to try to do something, to try to derail the master's banquet. They didn't want it to take place. They wanted that host to be there ashamed, to have an empty table, and, and he's sitting there by himself, and he's now the laughingstock because no one's coming to his party. So let's see the excuses that they make. The first excuse maker that we encounter we'll call the real estate expert. The real estate expert. Look at verse 18. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. This man believes that he needs to go inspect the field that he's just purchased. But again, this would have been transparently absurd to the original audience. Think about it. Middle East. Farmland. It it's, comes at a premium. It's an arid climate. And so if there is a place in which crops can grow, it is, it is a choice land. And so if they are needing to, uh, if a sale is taking place of some sort of farmland, then the sale, the transaction that would take place would go on over a period of months, maybe even years. Author Kenneth Bailey, who lived in the Middle East for 40 years, describes the process this way. He says, before uh, he buys a piece of cropland, he learns everything he can about it. He will be interested in the quality of the soil, its drainage, and whether or not it faces the winter sun. This is critical because in the eastern Mediterranean, rain falls in winter when the sun is low. A field that does not face the sun cannot produce a good crop. He will examine the quality of the terraces if it is terraced, and he will inquire about its yield in recent years. Are there fruit trees on the property? If so, how old are they? There, these and many other questions will be asked before the buyer even considers querying a piece of farmland. There's so much that would go into before you buy a piece of, of land that for this man here to give an excuse that he just bought the land and he needs to go even look at it is, no one would even believe that to be true. Clearly, this is absurd. No one would do such a thing. 
In other words, it's not a plausible excuse and it leaves the host with his, draw, his jaw dropped going, what? Same author, Kenneth Bailey, explains further. He says, the cultural equivalent would be a Westerner who calls his wife to tell her that he will be late for supper because he has just purchased a new house over the phone and having signed the check now wants to drive across town and look at it. Wants to look at the house for the first time after he's already paid for it. Again, the excuse is not understandable, is not excusable. Again, for someone to accept the invitation initially and not follow up on it was, was shameful. If something comes up last minute, they understood, but there had to be a really gracious and an apologetic sort of excuse, a plausible excuse that was given to the host. Without such a reasonable explanation, it stands as a deliberate public insult to the host. And so this real estate expert asks to be excused, but there's malice in his words. But let's meet the second excuse giver, the plowing expert. The first was the real estate expert. The second is the plowing expert, verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. The second man, verse 19, says he's just bought five yoke of oxen. That's five pair of oxen, two oxen that would fit into a yoke and be able to pull a plow. And so... Lots of money to be able to buy five yoke of oxen. But again, the same kind of principle is at play here. Who would make such a financial investment, especially a well, a farmer that understands what he's supposed to do, that would pay this kind of money for these sorts of animals without ever examining or inspecting them? Again, it's like us buying like five used cars and we've never test drive driven, driven them or even seen if they turn on. You'd at least want to like see them and see does this even work? This man is making a silly excuse but leaving the host high and dry. The farmer particularly uh, would need to know do these pair of oxen do they pull together? Again we for the non-farmer types, we just think, yeah, you got some oxen and you stick them together and they kind of do their thing, right? Well, they need to make sure that these oxen actually, the two that were paired together in the yoke actually pulled together and they worked in a way. One wasn't pulling too hard one way or the other and they worked as a team. And so that would have to be clearly inspected, either in a private sort of demonstration or a farmer who was selling a yoke of oxen would, would tell the village, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm hosting a demonstration of my oxen that I'm selling and all of the potential buyers would come and watch this demonstration to make sure that these oxen would pull together. Again, this excuse is absurd People would go, wait, what? You're, you're, you're missing out on this banquet because you, you bought some oxen that you haven't even looked at yet? What's going on here? There seems to be a coordinated effort to sabotage this banquet, to sabotage this party. They want it to be a flop. They want the hall empty. And we see this rude response go further even in the third excuse maker. The third excuse we'll call the passionate groom. The passionate groom, verse 20. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Very simply, I've married a wife, I cannot come. He doesn't even ask to be excused. Do you notice that? 
The other two said, please have me excused. He just says, yeah, I'm not going. I can't go. He's the rudest yet of the three. And his disrespect of this host is unspeakable, particularly in this culture, which was an honor-shame culture. Now, he's not simply saying like, oh, you know, I'm married now. I can't go to banquets while I'm married. You know, he, he's not claiming marriage as an excuse to get out of going to a banquet. Instead, he's very bluntly saying that he will be busy with his wife this evening and therefore thus won't be able to attend. In that culture, it was improper to speak of such things and would never be an acceptable excuse for reneging on a commitment. Again, he doesn't even ask to be excused. He's like, I'm going to be busy with my wife. I'm not going to go. These people show no respect for this host. The invitation that's been given, the gracious offer, they trample all over it and in the process publicly shame the host. Now in this parable, again, this is a parable that's seeking to teach a lesson. So what is Jesus seeking to teach thus far in the parable? These excuse makers represent Israel. These are the people of Israel that Jesus is speaking to even on that day. Jesus and his father represent the host. God has sent out a, a call, an invite to Israel. You could say that this went out through the Old Testament prophets. It went out through John the Baptist and it's even going out uh, with Jesus. This banquet host is the triune God preparing Israel for the messianic banquet. You'll remember Jesus stepped on the scene and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is mimicked to the servant's words, come now, all is ready. He says, Israel, you've heard the first invite all through your history, but now things are prepared. Will you come? And Jesus through this parable says, you have made excuse after excuse after excuse and you have shamed the Lord in rejecting his invitation. There was a call for Israel to repent and enter through the spiritual door of repentance and they rejected it. This second summons came through Jesus to join the feast and they would have nothing to do with it. They came up with all sorts of vain excuses and we've seen these already through the book of Luke. They said, oh, you know, I'm not following you, Jesus, because see, you are in league with the devil. You're, you're actually just doing what, uh, the, the devil's the one empowering you. Or they claim, uh, you know, you haven't quite done enough miracles and signs yet. That's why we're not believing you. Come on, do something for us. Show us that you're actually who you say you are, which is absurd because he's done miracles time and again in their presence. They claim that Jesus disobeys the law. He breaks the law. And so we can't follow you because you're a lawbreaker. You break the Sabbath. You disobey Moses. But the point in all of this, friends, is just like these excuse makers came up with absurd excuses because they ultimately wanted to shame the host, so too Israel came up with all sorts of excuses because they don't want Jesus. They don't want the Lord. And so they seek to publicly shame Jesus in the process. They rejected his offer to them. And this, friends, is a, is a potent example to us. 
That those who can hear the the gospel message time and again, those that can hear it maybe even all through their growing up years, hearing it through Sunday school, hearing it through church, and yet they assume that they may become automatically a Christian just because they've heard it so many times. Just because your parents might be Christian, just because you've heard sermons time and again, just because you've heard Bible lessons and you know all the stories in your Bible doesn't mean that you're automatically a Christian. It requires a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ. Many a church kid has grown up to show that he wasn't a Christian kid. He knew a lot about Jesus, but didn't know Jesus himself or herself. They assumed they were fine. And when it came time for them to make a decision about whether they will accept Jesus, they ultimately rejected him. Friends, every excuse that mankind seeks to put up for why they reject Jesus is ultimately that. It's an excuse. There are no legitimate reasons for any human being to refuse the offer that Jesus gives, an offer of salvation that goes to all people in all places and all times. Everyone is in the same need of salvation. Everyone has the same sinful nature. Everyone needs redemption and salvation. And therefore, everyone should run to the only place for eternal safety and redemption and forgiveness, and that's in Jesus Christ. There's a big difference between questions and excuses. People will have questions about the faith, questions about Christ, Christ, questions about the Bible, and those are appropriate but there's a way that questions can turn into excuses that are just as transparently absurd as these ones here. The problem is when questions are turned into stiff arms to repel Jesus. And I would just say, if you do have questions about your faith, questions about whether the Bible's true, about where you stand with the Lord, we wanna engage those questions and help you process those so you might know the truth and know where you truly stand with the Lord so that you might have the confidence to know that you stand in Christ and you know where you will spend eternity. But I pray that you will not fall into the trap of giving excuses simply for refusing to believe. Well, after these astonishing excuses that we see in this parable. Next, we see the amazing invitations. After the astonishing excuses, we look next to the amazing invitations. And we see this in verses 21 through 23. What will the host do? Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the serv- his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blamed and la- lame. Verse 21, the servant can no longer bear the shame of this master any longer. He's, he's seen it happen three times now where the Lord himself, the master, is, is ashamed. And so he, he retreats and goes back to the master to explain what's going on. Upon hearing the report, the master became angry He's clearly displeased at this rejection of him. They said they would come. They responded to my RSVP. They they said they would be there. Why have they now rejected it? He's He's angry. He's not having a pity party. He's been publicly shamed. His reputation has been damaged. He could lash out in revenge. 
He could take legal action. He could do some things to try to get back at these people that have conspired against him. But notice that doesn't happen. He is angry, but he turns that anger into grace. He opens his arms wider. Verse 21 says he turns his anger into another invitation. He sends his servant out. He says, go round up more people. Go out quickly, he says. Go to the streets and the lanes. The streets and the lanes refer to those within the city. Therefore, this is talking about those who would be despised within the house of Israel. If you think of Judaism at that time as somewhat of a city, a walled city, and inside the city, the, the certain friends were invited, but now he's saying, listen, go pick up anybody who's within these walls, within the city, the broad streets or the narrow lanes. He calls them the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. These are the people that would have been socially avoided, that would have not ever received an invitation to the party. They would have been people that would have been uh, outcasts. This is the same category of people that Jesus told the host of this very party to invite in. You'll remember in verse 13. And so here we see that God himself models the very hospitality that he's calling his people to do. He has a heart for the outcast. He has a heart for the disenfranchised, for those that don't level, meet the level of social standards. Jesus and the Lord want them included. The people of this day would never, the wealthy would never have invited such people to a party. They, because these people can't repay the host. They're going to come in, eat all the food, and the host is left cleaned out, and there's never going to be a return invitation. They wouldn't contribute to his image or to his reputation. In fact, by take, bringing in these people, he's taking on a social cost. He's bringing, in one sense, even more shame to his name. There's more laughing that will come to him at having such a guest because these guests don't contribute to his overall image as a respected person in the community. He would have been ridiculed for having such a motley crew around his dinner table. But the servant carries out his orders. And then he replies in verse 22. He says, the servant says, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. He says, listen, we still got tables. We still got room. The servant knew that the master wants a full house. And so he says, listen, master, I think we can still squeeze in more. There's still more room. And so the master, in an amazing act, commands a servant to go to the highways and hedges and to compel people to come in that his house may be filled. The host says, listen, I want this house filled to the brim. And so go out to the highways and hedges. This refers to the places outside the city. The places then metaphorically outside the city of, Jerus of Jerusalem, of, of, of Judaism rather. Those who were not Jews, i.e. Gentiles. Those who were of different, different ethnicity. The master says, go bring them in. These two sets of invitations are amazing because the invitations go, goes to those who don't deserve to come. 
There's nothing that they would have done in order to get themselves on that guest list. There's no possessions they have. There's no achievement, uh, achievements to their name that would cause them to be added to this guest list. And yet, there they are. And through Jesus, God has extended an invitation to the Messianic banquet. But God's table was not going to be filled only with Israelites. He also desires to bring in Gentiles. Friends, all non-Jews are also part of God's plan of salvation. He wants to fill his house with all peoples. And these are the, the people of the highways and the hedges, the roads outside of Israel. Now, this should not have been surprising to this original audience. Again, the very same passage we looked at earlier in the book of Isaiah, where it says that this feast was going to be prepared. Who did we know that feast was prepared for? For all peoples. God had indicated, even in the Old Testament, that his goal and his plan was for his table to be filled with people of all ethnicities of the planet. God had promised to Abraham, he said Abraham, he made the special covenant with Abraham that set up the whole uh, specialness of the Jewish nation. But in that covenant, he said that it's through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth, i.e. the Gentiles. Yes, Abraham, yes, your family is special, but we're gonna use your specialness to bless the nations. And friends, this explains why the host tells the servant to compel people to come in, to compel. That word typically means to force. And so you're getting this image of, of a servant who's going out and twisting arms, going, ah, 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 okay, okay, I'll go to your banquet, okay? But that's not, what it's, that's not what's going on here. He's not escorting them in at the tip of the sword, forcing them to come against their will. Unfortunately, through church history, there have been those who have used this very verse to justify persecution of non-Christians. Particularly the time in which the church and the state were wedded together when the church and the, the king or the government held equal power. And so they would compel foreign nations to turn to Christianity at the tip of the sword. They'd use it to justify crusades, justify the enslavement of other people too, because they were compelling them, they were forcing them to come in. And friends, this is, this is not the right application of this text. This is, there is no place in the scriptures that tell Christians to force other people to become Christians as if they actually could become Christians by simply putting a sword to their neck. That sort of justification was flatly wrong and we grieve that the scripture would be used in such a horrific way. That kind of forced conversion is not taught in this passage. You see, the reason that people would need to be compelled to come in is that they would recognize that they were unworthy. They should not be anywhere near the list of guests that should be included at this party. You know, ding dong, hi, I'm from so-and-so and I'm inviting you to, to uh, a banquet at his house. And you're like, wait, what? Are you sure you don't have the wrong house? Because someone inviting me to that banquet would never, ever, ever, ever happen in a million years. I'm sorry, I, I think you're mistaken. You must, there must be someone else with my name. Shut the door. And, 
And Jesus says, no, compel them to come in. Knock again. Plead with them. Say, no, the master wants you at his banquet. Come. Yes, that grace is that amazing. Yes, it's that incredible. It's that hard to believe. But yes, he wants you there. Come. Come, accept his invitation. It would have been too hard to believe. The grace would have been too amazing. In fact, it's common in Middle Eastern context for those of a lower social class to, it was, it was obligatory for them to refuse the, the, the invitation if it was from a higher social class. It was just like, uh, you just didn't accept right away. You didn't say, oh, great, cool, thanks. You're like, no, 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 no. And you'd push it off, push it off, push it off for several minutes. This master says, push through all of those refusals, compel them to come in. Friends, it is here in this parable that we see the amazing grace of God towards sinners and outsiders. Sinners and outsiders such as you and me. We are the people on the outside of Israel. We were on the highways and hedges. Paul says in Ephesians chapter two that we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were lost and did not deserve an invitation to the banquet. Instead, we were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were deserved to experience the wrath of God because of our sin, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we followed the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. But friends, God did not leave us in our lost state. God did not stand back and go, tough for you, losers. No, God rolled up his sleeves and he sought us out. He went on a rescue mission to redeem us and to save us, that we might be pulled in, that we might be accepted, that we might experience all that he wants for his people. Yes, we may not have originally been on the original invite list, but we are included. Do not miss that today. We have received the invitation and indeed it is too good to be true. And let's not forget that how is it that you and I can be included? It's because a sacrifice was paid. Jesus Christ came that he might give his life as a ransom for many so that we, our names could be on that guest list. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is the good news of the gospel, that the God who created us and the God whom we sinned against is the God who comes to rescue us through the sacrifice of his son. And so we give thanks to God. But the question is, what is your response gonna be to this invitation? He's calling you to come to his banquet. He's inviting and compelling all to respond to him, to accept him, to believe in him, to give their lives to him. No one can say he did not come to me. No, he's coming to you right now. His invitation is coming to you. Will you make an excuse like these people here or will you accept and embrace him? Will you humbly accept the marvelous grace that's being offered to you? This gift of grace being offered also comes with consequences for rejecting it. And that's where Jesus turns finally in this parable. And the fourth feature of this parable, and that is the advance warning. The advance warning. The last verse, Jesus says this, for I tell you, none of those men 
who were invited shall taste my banquet. I believe here in this verse that Jesus pivots from talking in the, in the voice of the master in the parable to voicing his own statement. Whenever he says, I tell you, or for I tell you, he's speaking to his immediate audience. In other words, he's stepping out of the storytelling and stepping into preaching and saying, listen, all of you around the table right now, for I tell you, none of those men who originally invited shall taste my banquet. In other words, all of you who reject and make excuses for not believing in me will not taste of my banquet. Jesus says, that banquet I was telling you about, that's my banquet. It's my messianic banquet that I will be hosting and you're not gonna experience it if you don't repent now. He's given an advance warning of what will happen if they don't submit their life and repent of their sin now. He wants them to respond. And so he gives them this advance warning. Those who were originally invited, the Pharisees sitting around the table, will not taste the banquet if they don't repent. And they will miss it, not because Jesus didn't invite them, but because they refused the invitation. He's patiently pleaded with them and they've closed their ears. He's persistently preached to them and they've stiffened their necks. He has graciously given them more time and they've only hardened their hearts more. And so the gate's gonna be open wide so that people like you and I can be included. Friends, in this final verse, there's both a warning and a hope. The warning that sobers us is that in just as the feast could be missed by people of that day, so it can be missed by people today by the same, taking the same tactics as the Jews of the first century, by rejecting the invitation of Christ. But the hope is that we see in these words, the invitation still stands. Listen, you can get a ticket to this great feast that will be hosted one day. You can experience forgiveness and joy that comes from knowing Jesus and that one day you will see him face to face when all will be made right and when the tears will be wiped from our eyes, we will be included on that great day. The question is, will you come and join the feast? Will you accept Jesus? I pray that each one of you would choose him and hear that invitation loud and clear this morning. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the message that comes through this text that you are the gracious God who continues to want to see your house full. You wanted to share. You wanted to love. You wanted to give. You didn't want to keep all of your goodness and grace to yourself. You wanted to share it with others and you wanted to fill your house, fill your table with many people who are redeemed and forgiven. And we thank you, Father, for your mercy that enables us, even today, to hear this invitation again. That you aren't just putting your offer out there in a nonchalant sort of way, but that you are pleading and compelling us to accept the offer through Jesus that we might experience eternal life and eternal joy forevermore. And Father, I ask that you would please be working upon the hearts and souls of the people here. That you would enable them to desire that hope that is found in Christ and that they would turn to him even today and trust in him completely. We thank you, Lord, for your work in our hearts, for the grace you offer us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.